Welcome to Funding the Future, a special edition of Category Visionaries, where instead of interviewing founders, we interview the VCs and angel investors that back them with capital, resources, and advice. Now, let's jump straight into today's episode. Hey, everyone, and thanks for listening. Today, I'm speaking with Rack Garg, principal at Bain Capital Ventures. Rack, thanks for chatting with me today. Thanks for having me, Brett. Great to be here. Yeah, no problem. So to kick things off, can you tell our audience a bit more about who you are and your background? Yeah, totally. I'm a principal at Bain Capital Ventures. We're a $10 billion venture capital firm, and I invest primarily in early stage companies doing cybersecurity, cloud infrastructure, artificial intelligence. Before investing, I grew up in the Bay Area. I was always kind of surrounded by software and technology. I was building apps and websites throughout high school and college. And then went to engineering school and gained an appreciation for the really low level of software, you know, how, how everything kind of works, the intersection of hardware and software. I did some research in applied AI and convolutional neural nets as a junior. And then after graduating, worked at Redfin where I was using AI to predict home values and basically provide real estate agents better productivity software, which really got me thinking about how you can use AI to make people more productive in industries where you would least expect it. So after Redfin, I went to Atlassian and I led product management for a security product called Atlassian Access. We were trying to help big companies protect their data and their employees within the Atlassian suite and left after a few years of products to join BCB when a role opened up. And would 15-year-old Rack be surprised that you ended up becoming a venture investor? I think unsurprising in the sense that I ended up in something entrepreneurial, but very surprised that I ended up an investor and not a founder. And are you ever tempted to jump into the hot seat and, and start a company or do you just love being an investor? You know, I'm, I'm torn. It's a really tough question because I often meet teams where I'm like, wow, this would be amazing to just go join this team and, and work on this product together. At the same time, I really like venture because you get to focus on a lot of different areas at the same time. And I think, you know, it probably wouldn't be out of the question for me at some point in the distant future. But for now, I, I really love investing. And I think it's just a privilege to be able to support founders. Amazing. I love it. I know you mentioned the verticals there that you're focused on. Are there any companies that you can share that you've invested in so far? Yeah, totally. I mean, a few on the infrastructure side are Docker, which you know helps developers do containerization, Redis Labs, which is a real-time database, Startree, which is commercializing a real-time analytics project called Apache Pino, Memento, which is a serverless cache. Basically, we we invest across all stages of the developer lifecycle, trying to help developers be more productive and you know, build the apps of the future. Then there's a bunch in stealth that I can't really talk about that are more in the sort of artificial intelligence, large language model, machine learning sort of ethos. And we're really excited about those too. Nice. Very cool. And if we just zoom out here, I'd love to talk about the state of venture. So obviously this year has been pretty crazy so far and we're just getting started. Last year was insane. So just from your perspective, how would you summarize the state of venture today? You know, it feels really optimistic to me. Last year was a very pessimistic year. It was like, where is everybody? There was a lot of doomsday and it was just unclear what was going to be the future of early stage startups. Right now feels like a renaissance moment. Maybe I feel that way because we're in San Francisco, but it just feels like there's a lot happening at the intersection of all these trends. I feel like you know, all these AI plus workflow systems are creating these new categories of products at the application layer. We're seeing a lot of really great companies producing new use cases there around storytelling, 
and knowledge work and you know automation. I think infrastructure is being invested in to support those categories. You know, the types of data you have to manage, the scale of that data, where you shuttle it to, all of that changes in this AI first world. And then I think young people are just really attracted to these really hard problems from energy to national security to climate. And AI has sort of a role to play in all of those verticals. So I, I feel like it's a really optimistic time to be in venture. And it's just infectious to be surrounded by so many people thinking about the future. Nice. I love that. Is there anything about venture that frustrates you right now or any things that you just see out there that you disagree with? You know, I'd say there, there's a couple things. One, maybe personal to me is there's just not enough hours in the day. You know, we, we can't work with everyone we want to. We can't go to every event that we want to. There's been a resurgence in hackathons in the Bay Area, and it's been incredible to go to these hackathons and just see hundreds of teams sort of building out these little use cases and then maybe someday start companies around them. And it's just frustrating not be able to spend enough time with every single person that, that we meet. I think the second thing is, and this is, you know, maybe this is sort of a natural part of markets being born. I think everybody's building on quicksand. You know, there's no sort of stable thing that we can point to and say, oh, if you build this, that's going to be a sustainable company for the next 10 years, especially in artificial intelligence. I feel like right now is a very, you know, what is OpenAI going to do? What is Cohere going to do? What's Adept going to do? sort of, you know, frame of time or, or frame of thinking for a lot of venture investors and a lot of founders. And so part of that is just the job, predicting what, what users want, owning a workflow, building a great product. But part of it is just there's a lot of unpredictability in knowing where the world is going to go. And then how do you navigate that world given there's so much unpredictability right now? You know, I think our framework for investing in AI has been, it's not enough to be AI for X. Like if you remember, you know, 10 years ago, a lot of founders would come to pitches and say, we're like Uber, but for this, or we're Airbnb, but for that. Mm-hmm. It's not enough to be open AI for something else. You have to own a really core workflow, especially at the application there. So the question that we're asking, which is a second order question, is what are the new workflows that you couldn't automate or couldn't do before that you can do now? And can we find teams that have a really core insight in where those workflows? So one example is sales enrichment right? The prior generation of companies in sales enrichment was ZoomInfo and Databook and other sorts of companies like that. Today, it's actually possible to mine a lot of data from LinkedIn and other places and then serialize and normalize it in a way that's relatively inexpensive and then hand that data to SDRs, BDRs, account executives so that they're much more well-positioned to have sales conversations with prospects, right? And so that is a new workflow. That's something that wasn't possible before given the tech stack that we had before. That's how we think about it at the application layer. I think the trouble recently has been that because there's a lot of interest, go-to-market is getting a lot harder because more and more products are crowding the marketplace and sort of creating noise, taking attention from, from the consumer. And so we're advising founders to think about once you figure out that workflow and you've got this core insight, you have to find a positioning and really own it. What else in terms of go-to-market advice are you sharing with founders right now? Anything else that comes to mind? You know, I work with really technical founders who are the experts in their respective fields. And the problem is that customers usually aren't, right? Customers have a very specific problem that they need solved. And founders have to meet the market where it is. And that means, you know, bringing a product mindset to some of these problems and then getting their message out there. So tactically, we tell founders and go-to-market to create categories and find a positioning that's unique, and then really drive that home in the mind of the consumer. 
you can do it in a bunch of different ways. You could produce content and you know repeat the same messaging over and over and over again, and then be strategic about where you put that content. You know, are your consumers going to be on Twitter, where a lot of AI influencers are these days? Are they on LinkedIn, where a lot of CIOs are and and want more AI native solutions to their problems? So, play, being strategic about placing that content in the right places, and then engaging those people when the time is right. So, for earlier stage companies. We advise them to think about lower CAC ways to acquire users or customers. That could be a content-driven sort of demand gen engine. It could be open source for infrastructure business. For a growthier company, someone who's later stage, it's about incentivizing the sales team the right way and then having a tight handoff between pre-sales and post-sales. But whichever stage the business is in, I really think it's about owning a messaging around a core workflow and around a core category. And something there you mentioned, which is uh, one of my favorite topics, is category creation. So when you're speaking with founders, does it happen often where they come in and say, hey, we're going to create a new market category, and then you have to just you know give them the advice that, hey, this isn't a new market category. It's just transforming and, and redefining an existing one. Does that ever happen? Yeah, it's actually more common than you'd think. You know, it's, it's pretty hard to create a net new category, which isn't all a bad thing. I think there are some categories that are not big enough to be categories on their own. And so should be sort of reworked versions of older categories. But if the company is in a really big opportunity and it's a really big market, we try to think about category creation in terms of, you know, what is well explained? What is something you can clearly explain to the customer? Is there a clear trend in the market towards that specific category? And then if those two things are coming together, do they come together in a time frame where your product is coming to market? If one of those three things isn't happening, you kind of risk customers not having the right mental model for your product. So some of the places where I've seen this sort of play out, you know, Clary is a company that we work with that created the revenue operations category. Clary saw that companies were booking revenue, they were winning new deals, and then they had to go and optimize that revenue in different ways. And data was going to be the way to do that. This is sort of mid-2010s. And so Clary created this idea that revenue operations is a function that should exist. You should hire people to do RevOps at your company. And that worked. It took a while, but the market got educated. And now every forward-making sales org thinks about RevOps as a core function in their sales stack. Gainsight did something similar with customer success operations. Tecton on the infrastructure side, something very similar with feature stores for machine learning. But in each of those cases, there was this clear trend. Something had changed in the way customers thought about their operations, and that created this opportunity for these companies to create the category. Yeah, I've studied Gainsight quite a bit and listened to a lot of their CEO's talks and how he describes it as he you know, just basically observed that the customer success manager title was being used, but there was no purpose-built software for them. There was no one really giving them love and attention, no one positioning them as the hero, and then that's what they capitalized on. So what you're saying there makes a lot of sense of you know, applying that across all those different industries as well. This show is brought to you by Frontlines Media, a podcast production studio that helps B2B founders launch, manage, and grow their own podcast. Now, if you're a founder, you may be thinking, I don't have time to host a podcast. I've got a company to build. Well, that's exactly what we built our service to do. You show up and host, and we handle literally everything else. To set up a call to discuss launching your own podcast, visit frontlines.io slash podcast. Now, back to today's episode. Another thing I'd love to ask about is uh, I saw in your Twitter bio that you're a product-led VC. So are all the deals that you do, are they always product-led companies? <laughs> that's, that's more about my uh, the way that I evaluate companies rather than their go-to-market model. 
I work with a number of companies that are sales-driven or top-down. I think being a product-led VC is about you know using a lot of the products that I've invested in, especially on the dev tools or infrastructure side. I still build things in my free time. I use a personal laptop in addition to my work laptop because it's about my developer environment the way that I like it. And you know, before I invest in a company, I try to go and at least use the product in some small use case sort of way to make sure I really understand how other people are going to use it first. It's a little bit easier with PLG companies because you can always just sort of you know click the try button or you start using it for free. And that's certainly something I've done for some of the productivity investments that I've made. But I, I'm just very product focused. I like to think about things in terms of, you know, what are the core use cases? What is the system of engagement? How do users react to different sort of product choices that the founder has made? And I think that's a more fun way to evaluate companies for me at the earlier stage. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And when you're evaluating those founding teams at that very early stage, what are some of those signals that you're looking for? And what's the criteria that you're looking for to know if it's a team that you want to bet on? There's a lot of things you could say here. I think on the team side, if it's an infrastructure business, we look for really technical founders who have faced the problem before in you know whatever other ways. So for example, a technical founder could come from, let's say a scaled company like Airbnb or LinkedIn or something and face a very niche problem in how that company, that team managed real-time analytics. And you know they could leave and decide to start a company around doing real-time analytics for the world. We would look to make sure that A, it's a problem they faced, B, other companies face this problem, and C, it's a really painful problem that people would someday adopt and, and pay a lot of money for. So that's on the technical side. On the application layer side, we think about you know what's changing about the world and why does that mean that this new product has to exist? That's one way to look at it. Another might be this is a category that hasn't seen any innovation in a long time. And that's why something new has to exist because so much else has changed. In the first world, it's like, you know, we already sort of mentioned RevOps, customer success operations, people using titles that didn't exist anymore. This is happening with prompt engineering, right? But you could go on LinkedIn and you'd find tens of thousands of prompt engineers now. That was not a thing four months ago. Like that's a brand new thing. In the second side of that, replacement markets are interesting because there's a lot of older products that still generate a ton of revenue that haven't changed in a meaningful amount of years. And meanwhile, the cloud has come, everybody's using cloud native services, You know, everything about the way we do LLMs and AI has changed. And so we think about those markets a lot. Nice, that makes a lot of sense. And when you're speaking with early stage founders, are there any things that you see them do that just drive you insane? So when they're making their pitch or when you're having conversations, is there any, thing that comes to mind that you just want them to stop, but you can't maybe necessarily give them that direct feedback? <laughs> There's a few things here. So the first is, I think a lot of founders can fall into the trap of, if we just build a really great product, everybody's going to come use us and going to find out about us organically. Sometimes that does happen, but most of the time it doesn't happen that way. And getting lost in the trap of, you know, I'm just going to build something really great. Everybody else will come and use me is a hard one to break out of. So one of the things that I specifically listen for is, you know, here's what we're going to do in our first month or our first two months to make sure people hear about us. It could be anything. It could be Twitter. It could be LinkedIn. It could be content. It could be podcasts. It could be a newsletter where you have a few thousand subscribers. People get very creative with how they do these things, but just something that shows they're thinking about how to get the word out there. The second failure mode 
is the TAM slide. <laughs> like I'm going to go and figure out the TAM for every company that I invest in or am interested in. And I think founders that spend a lot of time thinking about, you know, here's what this research firm says about this market. It just sort of wastes, you know, precious time in a short pitch. So I'd say those are the two most common. And how important do you think it is for a founder to be in the Bay Area? So we were talking about that in the pre-interview that that we're both here. I know you're a native of the Bay Area. So how important do you think that is for founders? Sam Altman had a great tweet and he said, if you were a startup employee and your number one competitor was in person and your number two competitor was remote, who would you be more afraid of? And I think that's a really good way to put it because it takes you out of the equation. Like it takes your preferences out of the equation. Everybody that I've asked in my networks says they're more afraid of the in-person competitor than the fully remote competitor. So I think Bay Area centricity is not as important today as maybe one day it was, but I'm a really big fan of in-person work. And if that's in-person in New York or in Miami or in LA or somewhere else, it doesn't really matter to me as long as you know the team is getting together in person, seeing each other regularly. I think talent diversity is a really important thing that companies should strive for. And it's harder to get that kind of diversity if you, you know restrict yourself to one place. But there's ways that you can do it as you scale. And I've seen a lot of our teams start to build out hubs, like collaboration hubs, where people go in a couple times a week. I've seen a lot of companies build bi-coastally. So the CEO is flying back and forth. You have sales and marketing in one area and then R&D in another. But whatever you know, way you choose, I think in-person teams have a very clear edge over remote teams. Nice. Love that. And last couple of questions here for you before we wrap. I know you've touched on market opportunities a couple of times here, but are there any others that you're especially excited about? And the reason I ask is you know, a lot of founders are listening in. So our typical guest is a founder, and, and that's built a decent-sized audience of early stage founders. Most of them are technical. So who should reach out to you and who should get in touch if they have an idea and what opportunities are you looking for? Yeah, totally. I love this question. If I could give you the sort of one minute spiel, I'm looking for technical founders who are building the future of security and AI. I think the specific opportunities there are one, the intersection of the two. So cyber is going to have to change in response to generative AI. There's going to be new threats that attackers use using these large language models and you know, detecting whether or not a large language model has been used is still very, very hard. Some of the best state-of-the-art approaches have only been able to achieve 26 to 30% accuracy there, which is not going to fly in a production sort of environment. So that's one opportunity. The second is as LLMs will proliferate, I think there'll be more and more opportunity to use retrieval, which is the idea that the LLM can go and get the right facts from a data store to go ground its generations from. Right. And so I think retrieval becomes this really important part of the data stack for AI companies in the future. And then lastly, I think, you know, there was a period of time when software development was really hard and then it got really easy. And now it's really hard again. And so finding, you know, these areas for automation to help developers sort of do their work faster, I think is going to be huge. We already saw that with Copilot. Code Complete is another really talented team in San Francisco. But, you know, documentation, release notes, build and merge, test coverage, all these parts of the software development lifecycle, I think are going to get disrupted by large language models. And final question, let's zoom out 12 months and let's do some predictions, which I know everyone loves to do. So what's your prediction for what's going to happen over the next 12 months in venture and startup land? You know, I think there's one broad prediction and then one specific one, 
broadly, I think there's going to be a huge consolidation effect because there's still a hangover effect in a lot of the growth companies that are going to have a very hard time growing into their 2021 valuations. And I've talked to a lot of my talented friends who are thinking about joining startups, who are interviewing at a bunch of places. And I found that broadly in the talent market, a lot of people are asking the question, how do you justify your current valuation? And the only thing that a company can do in response is increase the cash salary or give them way more equity. The former puts pressure on burn rate and the latter dilutes everybody else. And so I think there's going to be a big wave of consolidation as the market sort of resolves that discrepancy. In, in venture specifically, I think we'll see a lot of great ideas that were funded at the application layer that are LLM centric be adopted as features of incumbents. And so if you think back six months, we saw a ton around generative art, right? DAO E2 had just come out, stability came out a couple of weeks later. Now, if you fast forward, Adobe, Figma, Microsoft, even NVIDIA, all have generative art features, canvases, or or apps that they've built. And so I think if you go forward another 12 months, a lot of the incumbents that were sort of on the sidelines trying to figure out what was worth building, what was worth sort of, you know, waiting and watching for, I think we're going to see a lot more of these integrations with LLM APIs in the in the apps we already know and like best. And I think that's a really good thing for startups because if you're in a net new category like NLP for law or NLP for I don't know, health insurance bills, mm-hmm. I think, uh, you know, the market's sort of wide open for you. Amazing. I love that. All right. Well, we're going to have to end here. Unfortunately, I'd love to keep you on and ask you a bunch more questions, but we'll have to save that for part two. Before we wrap, if founders want to get in touch with you, where should they go? I'm very active on Twitter at rack underscore garg. Awesome. Rack, thank you so much for taking the time to chat. Really appreciate it and really enjoyed the conversation. Thank you too, Brett. Likewise. All right. Keep in touch. This episode of Category Visionaries is brought to you by Frontlines Media, Silicon Valley's leading podcast production studio. If you're a B2B founder looking for help launching and growing your own podcast, visit frontlines.io slash podcast. And for the latest episode, search for Category Visionaries on your podcast platform of choice. Thanks for listening and we'll catch you on the next episode. 